Hello and welcome to the Maidcast, the official podcast of the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment, a series of lectures on video game history as part of Maid's ongoing effort to preserve history through teaching and displaying playable exhibits of rare games and consoles. While life in the time of COVID has forced us to close our doors, the support of people like you has allowed us to continue to bring history to you through lectures like the one you'll hear in a few minutes. I'm Red. I'm Miles. I'm Chin. And I'm Anthony. Let's get into some news. The news today, it is news time. Here we have news God, for you. And no, don't me. do that. Stop. Uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, we don't I'm try- it's new ideas. We got to. No jingles. <laughs> new ideas. Got to keep it flowing, everybody. <laughs> I mean, Pokemon news. I mean, well, hey, I was getting everybody ready for the Pokemon concert. You are not Post Malone, though. <laughs> no, I am not Post Malone. I mean, but I'm working on it. A couple, gonna, a, a few a more face more, tattoos. And, yeah, face tattoos. Yeah, a few more face tattoos and and a little bit of auto tune and uh, more rap skills uh, and and uh, more drive uh, and <laughs> a lot more rap skills. Not least of which is the long-awaited Gen Four remakes. Very exciting. I have come back soon. Diamond and Pearl. No, the the remake names. Well, uh, giant, giant diamond or giant pearl. Yeah, b- big diamond. Yeah, big diamond and large I mean, pearl. Brilliant diamond and shining pearl. Okay. 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 Coming later this <laughs> of year. Of course. Big diamond, large pearl. I wonder what happened to the platinum. Yeah, platinum will be. <laughs> just don't tell yeah, me shiny it's... platinum. Just don't tell <laughs> me it's in the DLC. Tell me it's inside. That would be that would be cool. I have a feeling that they would probably do that. Oh no! I mean, I mean, they might. When they did the remakes for Gen 3, they just completely skipped over Emerald, which was the best of the three. Yeah. And they've kind of done away with the like third game that's the combination of the first two. Like, they don't do Emeralds and Platinums and, you know, that style anymore. I just hope so, they don't skip it. It'll be interesting to see. Just don't skip it, at least. Yeah. I'll be crying if they do that. I mean, because, yeah, Platinum was the best of the three. Like, the third game always yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah. The story's a little expanded. I... There's always a little more features. I was always amazed when Emerald, like the first Emerald, like I played, it was, I was always amazed at how that was the singularly most hyped game of my childhood, I think, mm-hmm. was Pokemon Emerald. I mean, just the, getting Rayquaza and like seeing that, it's like, oh, that's such a power move to other kids. Like just showing you had Emerald at the time, at least for me. <laughs> but Pokemon has, Pokemon is, was, will always hold a special place in my heart. Yeah. Even though I haven't really touched a game in since. No, I played a little bit of Black. I never finished it. But, oh well. That was a good generation. Yeah. What was that? Five? It was. Uh, it was enjoyable. It was yes. Because I, like, I was like, no, I played one after that. But then it was like, no, that was just a remake. I played Heart Silver and uh, Soul Silver and Heart Gold. That was a good generation. That, that was the best generation. I mean, that's what they should do with Pokemon. But we have other news we all I mean we'll we'll get into plenty of news earlier but final fantasy 7 is the remake is now the playstation plus free game of march so everybody get ready to download that that's going to be quite a huge one I, I still need to finish hard mode we noticed that you can upgrade your ps4 version from ps plus to the ps5 but if you buy it you'll be able to play it okay. free on ps5 and of course, they push it out together with a DLC. Ooh. Hmm. What is in the new DLC? Did they announce anything uh, about it? There is, but I, I think it's better if we don't spoil it just to let people to find it out. I mean, we have done enough okay. spoiler in this 
so far podcast in 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 our history. I think it's time to stop doing a little bit more. Like yes, I mean we can be a little stance. more reserved. We can just start like editing old episodes and beeping out <laughs> old spoilers. We could just stop talking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, say nothing. Thirty minutes of silence. Yeah, and it's like sorry, you said three seconds, right? Um. <laughs> Uh, so Anthem has also canceled any future updates, which I'm kind of surprised that it took them this long. What a destiny for uh, this game. <laughs> nice. No destiny. No, I'm, I'm, I'm also a bit surprised that they, I'm really surprised that they stuck it out this long because Anthem did not have an easy launch. It was very buggy, very rocky at the start, and it just sort of continued and just reading the article now, I realized that it came out two years ago. It felt like it came out like at most a year ago, but no, it was 2019. Yeah. Time flies. Well, I mean, last year was a, a flux year. Last uh, year was a was a year. Yeah, apparently, that so I've been told. <laughs> it's been a year. Yeah. So. It's been yeah, one year since you laughed at me. But no, so uh, EA recently announced that. Bioware is no longer going to be working on a revision, an overhaul of the game. And instead, it is going to just sort of exist as it does. Which is unfortunate. I mean, maybe they'll take a page out of Final Fantasy XIV. Uh, oh, great. It's, yeah. <laughs> is that good I mean, news? Like, well, I mean, apparently it's good now. Like, just, you know, destroy everything and then redo it. Just redo it. And make it better. As that's, I mean, that's all you need to do is just redo everything. <laughs> that costs a lot of dedication. Actually, I I really admire the producer who made this decision, and also Square Enix who allowed the producer to make such a decision. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely it's something that's uh, an interesting piece of gaming history to have that broken down and not like broken down and not exist in the in its original form, but the willingness to continue on with a project that is essentially a complete redo from the bottom up i thought that was really interesting it's something to kind of aspire to if you have a vision like that don't settle for anything that you're not that you're not happy with so Mm -hmm. other new news i think we will talk uh all blizzcon news after the second segment here Thank you for joining us today on the Maids Podcast. We have with here the Tim of Legend. Tim Schaefer, thank you for joining us. Hello. Thank you for having me. Uh, we have been delving into the history of Lucasfilm for weeks on end now. Uh, we had David Fox on the other day. I know he's the fellow who hired you there. Do you have yeah. any fond memories or David Fox stories? It's all his fault. Um, he was the one that called me when I applied for the job, and famously I uh, almost lost the job when I was talking to him. Did he bring that up? Uh, I think he mentioned that he hired you. I don't know that he mentioned the story. <laughs> he was asking me what Lucas uh, film. It was called Lucas Film Games at the time. What of their games I had played? And I was like, oh, I really love Ball Blaster. And he was like, Ball Blaster, huh? Hmm. That's what it was called when it was pirated. <laughs> I was like, Oh no! He caught me. Yeah, he totally caught me. But that's what motivated me to um, do a ridiculous cover letter that looked like a text adventure. It looked kind of like a illustrated text adventure. I drew it on my Atari 800 with a koala pad. Wow. And I these pictures of me trying to find my dream job and um, ending up at uh, Lucasfilm. So the Atari 800 was the was your weapon of choice at the time? Yeah, I, I started with a 400. I had a 400 with a little microwave oven keyboard, kind <laughs> of uh, membrane keyboard. 
Uh, and I loved uh, adventure games on that. That's why I got started with the Scott Adams adventures. You know, mm. I think um, Voodoo Castle or um, the Count Dracula one uh, were the first I played. And I got the little gold box set of all the five and a quarter floppies of all the Scott Adams adventure games in them. But I think Savage Island was one of my, like, really pivotal to me. I don't know why I love Savage Island. What do you remember about it then? Um, about playing adventure games? No, uh, no, Savage Island. <laughs> you know, that's strange. I mostly remember just that feeling of, like, I am so into this game. And uh, uh, that was the one, the sequel was really hard. You had to, you could walk down a hallway, but you'd run out, you, 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 you would run out of oxygen and die in the third or fourth move of the, of the game. <laughs> no, if you didn't type the word hyperventilate, <laughs> it just, it's also a funny example of how, like, how they're like, well, we have, we have a text-based engine. You don't have to type everything as like a verb and a noun. You can just like, you know, hyperventilate. What a strange concept. I don't know how, but I did solve that. So I don't know how I did solve that. Maybe I looked up soft side magazine for hints or something. But uh, then there was Ghost Town, which is the Western one, where I had to like go look up the um, how to make gunpowder, which was really fun. Like they used to have adventure games used to have like a, a a more of a sense of sending you out into the world. You know, it wasn't just contained in the game itself, but it would be like you have to get to figure out how to make gunpowder. Oh, I went over to the encyclopedia and I looked up how to make gunpowder, and then I searched for the ingredients in the world and and then made it. There was another one where you walked into a room and a ghost whispered whispered a long weird word. And I went and looked up the word, and like, oh, that gave me the clue that I needed. So interesting. Uh, That's uh, a good point. You get a game like Minecraft today, making gunpowder in a, in a sort of a crafting way would just be arbitrary items. It would never correspond to actual items, exacting recipes. Yeah, it's right? almost like a little more like AR games. Like, like most most games want to pull you into their world and never let you forget, like make you forget there is an outside world. Mm-hmm. Like, just all you need is me. All you need is the game. But those some of those older games are like, go out into the world and le- learn about gunpowder kids what could be healthier than that <laughs> but is... i played those and all the infocom games uh and uh all the all the zork games and the um or i think there are brian moriarty's games the wish uh he did trinity and the, their spell was was the sorcerer one with all the scrolls Wishbringer. oh uh, sorcerer i think sorcerer yeah yeah and deadline and uh um the hitchhiker's guide these were all ones that came with elaborate packaging and books and, and interesting boxes yeah that try. I wish I. I wish I had that spellbound mask now. That kind of Michael Myers mask that came with spellbound. Oh, that's right. Yes. This also brings up sort of the lineage and why the early adventure games were so brutal. Like the Sierra games, <laughs> you know, have no compunction with just offing you on just about any screen. They're not as bad as say the hyperventilate situation. Like they were considered more <laughs> charitable at the time, I suppose. I mean, also because I had one game for the whole summer. Like, I just like this is what I was putting everything I had into. You know, it wasn't like, you know, you have hundreds of um, games available to you every day on your console if you want to play. So, like, if something doesn't grab you in the first few seconds, you just move on. But back then, I was like, I've got to get through this game. I'm going to get through this game. I just, I just, I remember that feeling of being like in the seventh or eighth grade when I first heard about these games. It was like part of we were still understanding what the impact of computers would be and what the possibilities were for video games. I remember that feeling of like, well, computers are so powerful now. This is like 1979. (laughs) So powerful now. They can basically. You can type anything into them and it will just answer you. It'll like that was the premise of adventure games. Like on a TRS 80, you just like have a prompt and you could just type and they could just. I was like, you mean they just have every single possible English sentence inside of them waiting for you? And, and my dad was like, yeah, basically, I think, you know, they're just so powerful now. And I was like, wow. And the thought of just going up 
and being able to type anything you want and have the game just simulate the world. So it wasn't exactly as robust as I was imagining it. And then, you know, then I played those games where you could say, get screwdriver. But it was the imagination is a big part of it, though. Mm -hmm. That was a huge part of these text adventures. I want to move on to sort of the development tools of the day, because that's another thing we cover and we like to talk about historically. Uh, we've really covered the genesis of Scum right down to the very beginning of discussions of, of Chip and Ron. What did you think when you came into Lucas and were handed Scum to use as a tool? I, I mean, we loved it. It was uh, Maybe it was just because it was a magical time. We were like... I was just out of college. Uh, I think uh, Dave was one year out of grad school and, and we were working at Skywalker Ranch. So there's that context of like how amazing and beautiful and lucky we were. We were. Oh, wait, we weren't beautiful. Well, we were. I don't know. You're so, beautiful, Tim. Yeah, it was a beautiful place and we were very lucky to be there. And we learned like, you know, in school, we would mostly use C. I'd use C and, and Lisp and stuff. And so this uh, language seemed to, it's the main thing was uh, I think Ron had, had purposely written to be very usable and, and English friendly. Like it was like it read like English walk, guybrush to window, wait for actor, guybrush, you know, turn guybrush left. <laughs> it was very understandable. You could just, you could just see it very logical. And, um, and it's hard to really evaluate it because that was my first um, and only programming job was scum. You know, and, you know, people we complain about it all the time, but it was like uh, uh, a very, just very simple and elegant way to just imagine an adventure game uh, and see the logic on the page. You could read anybody's scum code and be like, I know what this is going to do. That's a huge, huge aspect of sort of iterative workflow and being able to make things, you know, better over time and go back and edit things too, right? Yeah, because we were... Um, we were really crafting these things like second by second, like, you know, just sitting in that room with Dave and like you walk the character up to the desk. Oh, but his hand goes up like a pixel behind the desk when he should be in front of it. And you'd like paint something or draw something or program something differently. And like, you'd, you just really, um, you'd really go back and forth into this code to like make things look perfect, you know? And that's an interesting thing that I keep harping on is, is the thing that developers now are most interested in doing with their workflows is getting that immediate feedback, getting them, the edits in, getting the immediate feedback. It's a big thing yeah. of JavaScript. I mean, I probably made it sound a little more immediate than it actually was. I think nowadays, like with hot fixes, you know, like you're, you're in Unreal or something and you change something and you're actually in the game engine when you do it. But we would actually have to sit there and compile for, like there are these little bits of our day taken away like 45 seconds or like 30 seconds, 45, to a minute, you know, and every, every time we wanted to make a change. So that's where I got into like Rubik's Cubes and dumb <laughs> hobbies I could do at my desk. <laughs> you're sitting at your desk just waiting. That's, it's funny you mention that because, you know, in, in the business world, they're 20, 30 minutes, two hours, four hours. So, you know, even then you were, those fast uh, compile times are very quick. I wanted to also talk about sort of the end of the Lucas world because we really haven't talked about that with the other folks that we've spoken to. Uh, when I was in computer gaming world, I remember very distinctly when Grim Fandango came out and we were all loved the game and we were almost in mourning for it because we were just like, who's going to buy this right now? This, the, nobody buys our adventure games in 2000. Everybody wants first-person perspective shooters and real-time strategy games. Yeah, no one told us that when we were making it, though. That was, uh, that was news to us. I'm wondering, like, did you, th you obviously you didn't think that at the time, or what was your impression at the time? I just wanted to make that game. I think that's usually my blind spot about games. Like, I never have thought about, like, well, no, we did make commercial concessions, and, and Grimm it had a big commercial concession, and that was 3D. You know, people have been trying to, like, push 3D for a while, and we were... We we're all about 2D art, you know. We had people like Peter Chan and you know, Larry were these amazing 2D artists. Like, why would 3D art look so bad? You know, it looks so chunky and clunky. And, but then I saw um, BioForge, which is the um, 
Ken Demarest game where it looked, and I was like, oh, I could see this. So I, I, I could see that working for the Day of the Dead, and I was just so uh, uh, invested in that game. And um, and then I, um, I guess I never really was like, we were never really driven by like what game would sell the most. We were just mostly inspiration driven, which I think is what we're still today, you know, working by whatever idea really excites us. Because at least, you know, like we're still talking about Grimm. We still just remastered it. We made, uh, you know, money from it, you know, when we remastered it. It was still something that um, that matters to some people. So it's, I feel like in the end, you know, I'd rather have that. I'd rather have spent my energy on something like that that people still care about than something that maybe sold a lot in 1998 and no one, no one does think about anymore. That is a good point. I mean, the good stuff is always eventually appreciated, especially in the games industry, I feel. I mean, I, I was just curious as, as to your thoughts at the time, because, I mean, that was it at Lucas, and, and you sort of took a little break after that, didn't you? Yeah, I mean, I think that was going to be, whether I left, yeah, it took like a year while I was developing the next game. I was going to make this spy game. Um, and I think either way, that was not going to be a straight adventure game. I think it was going to be like moving in the direction to what eventually would become Psychonauts. It was just, I was playing a lot of games like Final Fantasy VII and uh, Super Mario had just come out. And it's just like, wow, these games are so easy to move through and so quick. Like, I wonder if you could combine the exploration and puzzle solving adventure games with just this breezy, really immersive feeling, you know. So uh, I was working on that game. And I think we were not going to be working in Scum anymore. But then I left and started LucasArts and, and jumped on full but um i've talked so much i don't remember the question uh, i was uh, sort of wondering your thoughts at the time at the end there what like how did you feel when grim came out when it, and how it was received um i mean it was still really exciting like we won game of the year that was really exciting from games um game spot and mm -hmm. um and the positive response the game got i mean i we didn't really have i mean uh, we didn't have huge exp uh, uh, expectations with adventure games in that they were you know, the company was starting to make Star Wars games and they were making tons of money. And we were like, you know, we had peaked with uh, Full Throttle. You know, Full Throttle had sold like a million copies. It was the first one that I remember selling a million, you know, mm. when it launched. And um, and then, you know, that... I would just, I'm just always been happy to be able to make the games I made. But what I feel bad about is that people that are telling me that they felt Grimm contributed to the end of adventure games. These people oh, no. from... Uh, well, let me tell you the story. <laughs> so these these uh, guys from Gas Powered Games came up to me and like, yeah, we went to our boss and we're like, we want to make an adventure game. We love the... Uh, we love adventure games. We want to make an adventure game. And their boss said, hey, look, are you going to make a game better than Grim Fandango? No one bought Grim Fandango. So you get, unless it's going to be like three times as good as Grim Fandango, it's not going to sell any better. And so it was like used as a weapon to cancel uh, other projects. And I was like, oh, you guys, come on. Oh, it's brutal. I mean, that was that was absolutely the thought process at the time, though. I mean, everything was first-person perspective shooters and real-time strategy. It was, it was the I heyday. Not to jump to the end or anything, but I feel like what uh, what has happened is that people always ask, like, you know, why did adventure games die and stuff like that? No, they haven't died, obviously. We're no. still here talking about them. But obviously, um, also, if you say they're dead, you get in a lot of trouble with <laughs> adventure game fans. So I'm not making that mistake again. But the feeling is, to, the thing is, to me, it, it, it only seemed like, I, I think the audience has always has stayed the same or grown for adventure games. It's just that the rest of the industry grew exponentially. So mm. back when we were doing, you know, the games like Archon and, you know, Pinball Construction Set and adventure games, adventure games were huge. And um, they're the only ones that had real narrative and beautiful art and beautiful music, you know. And then um, eventually, you know, like first-person shooters and uh, console platformers, exploded like i remember hearing the news that mario 3 had sold 3 million copies i was like what you can sell 3 million copies of a game what is going on uh you know and then um 
and the shooters brought in a lot of people who were previously not really interested in games. And so, it, it, but, um, so back then it felt like you could always make, you could always sell about 200,000 copies of an adventure game. And I feel like you still could always do that. I think you could still do that, you know? It's just that that doesn't feel like a hit to people. You know, mm. Grimm, when it launched, sold about 500,000 copies. Mm. Um, it was just half as much as Throttle, which was a, a million. Mm. And, um, and so I think it's just the relative sales that make people think that they're not popular. It's just that they didn't grow, it, but they still is that um, not like if you can figure out then the business model of making a profit by selling 200,000 to 500,000 copies of a game which is good you know mm -hmm. you can just don't um spend too much money you can you can make a living making adventure games yeah exactly uh, and i did not mean to insinuate that adventure games died or anything but i, I do remember there was a there was a you don't get in trouble either no i do not i don't want to be in trouble <laughs> but there, there was that dip uh, I wanted to shift gears and I also wanted to leave, leave time for you to talk about Psychonauts too, because I'm sure you have, you know, you've got to get, uh, got to get some things in there for the fans who are expecting that game. If you want to talk about it, <laughs> working on it, but I, I wanted to say if there, if there were any sort of lessons that you learned from Lucas about managing passionate nerds that you've taken over to sort of the double fine and even to this day on Psychonauts too. Managing passionate nerds. That's interesting. Um, you know, look, you went through a lot of turmoil and stuff in those early days. There were like factions, you know, they, we had the artists in B building and the programmers were in A building and they would, there'd be these fights that like who controlled the game, who was more important, programmers or artists. Um, and then when we, Dave and I finally got to run a project, we really felt like the artists were, you know, equal to the programmers and we tried to run things that way. And it was, it seems strange now, like it seems strange to talk about this like, time when, well, maybe it doesn't seem strange to people. Maybe people are still experiencing that. But to us, like this, um, the era of actually like, hey, what if we actually uh, respected the artists? You know, I mean, um, it was it seemed like this new thing. And so trying to get rid of that sort of factionalism between the team is still it's ongoing. Like you st still have to fight this battle where it's really hard to create um, a culture of trust between departments, like making sure that uh, programmers and artists and, and audio people and designers and producers all see each other as human beings who are all on the same side. That's one of the hardest things with a creative project that's under pressure for time and schedule and money, you know, because you can, especially, you know, we're all working in the same environment. You know, people are not, you can, you can check things out of a, a version control and mess up somebody else's work by checking something in wrong and it can just create a whole bunch of attention. So, but I noticed that at LucasArts, the, the just being different buildings and, and it's really easy to create a, a feeling of separation among a team and getting people to really feel like they're on the same team and they're working with their their friends is a, is a, a really important thing to maintain because it just makes the, the whole process so much healthier and better for everyone. And how is Psychonauts 2 coming? It's a, it seems like you've been hard at work. Yeah, I mean, it's been a, the story, it's like the story of our company in some ways. Like it, it started with crowdfunding and it got a publisher then it lost its publisher got another publisher and then that publisher went away and then it got microsoft it was like the opposite of psychonauts one it started with microsoft and then <laughs> it went to another publisher and so um it's a funny mirror of the first game but um it's it's just something we care about so much and we want to get right so we uh we uh are putting everything into it and um it's been great like, I don't know what would happen if we hadn't uh, partnered up with Microsoft because they're making sure that we are making all the decisions for the right reasons in the end. Because, you know, when you get under pressure, you can get this decision. You can just decide to like, well, I guess we won't polish the game or we won't fix these bugs or else, you know, some people would crunch the team. And we really crunched the team on the first game and we made this resolution to not crunch the team anymore. I think that's something that the games industry is slowly growing out of, I hope, you know. And so um, uh, how do you, you know, how do you solve that? So. But anyway, that's stuff that's going on now. But uh, it's coming along great. The team is great. 
Oh, the game's going to be good. I, I think it helps that Microsoft at its core understands software development. You know what I mean? It's, it, it, they seem to... Yes. Someone said, I think it was Nathan Martz, or um, uh, lead programmer on Brutal, he said, uh, games are like the complexity of engineering multiplied by the subjectivity of art. So... <laughs> I think, yeah, and working with people who know it could be unpredictable is important. It's very, it's very difficult to get it right. I mean, how do you know when something is right in a game? I mean, is it just fun, or I mean, how do you even tell if you've tried it a hundred times? I mean, that you playtest it, you playtest with other people. It's, it's, it's an interesting thing now with uh, everyone living on Zoom, you know. But we are playtesting over Zoom. We're watching people play it, which in some ways is better than before. We'd like sit in a room and and put them on a couch, and we'd sit behind them and try not to cough and watch them play the game but now we can just watch them on zoom and we have a recording of it and we um can share the recording with people and um and everyone has their own way of playtesting the game but it's like you can have the best intentions of the world especially with adventure games and um if you don't kind of build in these ramps or like file off the edges someone will just hit a hard stop it's really easy to get a hard stop in an adventure game and when you're watching someone like a playtest environment is really painful because like those summers where i was playing um you know Savage Island and, and Ghost Town, uh, you wouldn't feel the pain of me being stuck on a puzzle. It was just part of the fun. And then, but if you're in a room watching someone go like, I have to make gunpowder. I don't know how to make gunpowder. <laughs> it just, you feel like you instantly, oh, I gotta, I gotta change. It's really tempting to make every puzzle go away because you're like, oh, I hated that moment where the player didn't know what to do. And so that's, that's a challenge for adventure games in the modern day because I think usability is a big f- emphasis on. On games now people should always know what they're doing they should be moving forward momentum is really important and adventure games go against that in so many ways they like you have to be you have to find a way of making being stuck entertaining for people <laughs> like okay i was stuck but i was totally entertained i always think of this example with my my brother when i was in high school my brother would come back from his job in college at a summer camp and they have all these summer camp games and a lot of these are these little riddles you know like these those riddles for um, you know, a man is laying face down in the middle of a field. How did he get there? You're, you know, and you guess, you ask all these yes or no questions, and then you guess the answer. It's like a little puzzle, like an adventure game puzzle in a way. And the thing about it that made it fun was as we were stuck, we'd be telling this around the dinner table, but as we were stuck on this puzzle, he'd be smiling at us and like, <laughs> oh, you're really close. He'd be like, telling, oh, yeah. And then my sister would get a, hey, oh, oh, she got a hit. She got a, hey, I'd be like, what, what? She's going to give it for me. And, that process of being stuck was really part of the entertainment. And I've always thought about those, those meals where we had one of his riddles going on. And like, how can I recreate that feeling of my brother kind of taunting me and making sure I knew I was really close to solving a puzzle? Like that always seemed like the adventure game magic to me. In fact, but and people might uh, feel differently about this, but he was the one that came back from the camp with a story of like, if this is three, if this is two, what's this? You can't, you can't see me on if you're not on the Zoom Wait, call. The this, three this fingers three. versus one finger, yeah. <laughs> the, uh, it's the uh, Monkey Island Alley um, backdoor uh, puzzle that came from. I blamed that on my brother in his summer camp. <laughs> the summer camps come uh, always uh, come up with the most interesting riddles and weird games and stuff. Mm-hmm. Kids, it's like Lord of the Flies. Yeah, so it's, it's almost like, I don't know, Psychonauts thing. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, excellent. Well, Tim, thank you for being here and good luck on Psychonauts too. Uh, we thank really you. appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Thank you again very much for your conversation. Uh, hope you all enjoyed that out there as well. Uh, Anthony, BlizzCon, lots of new stuff happening. Tons what has been your favorite or biggest piece of news from BlizzCon that you've seen? 
the Burning Crusade uh, update for the WoW Classic. So that, that's very interesting. Uh, mm-hmm. So it seems like WoW Classic is sort of progressing how it did in the past. Kind of like Terminator, I guess. I don't know. That's how I would describe the whole WoW Classic progression. It's like we're going, yeah. going to the past now. John Connor, um, let's uh, you know <laughs> save the world again. I think, yeah, the only way to save the world is to bring back the old world and continue anew again. It definitely feels like everything old is new again at Blizzard. Like, uh, we're going back to Burning Crusade. We're just, WoW Classic is where it's at right now. And then the uh, remaster of uh, Diablo 2. That is one of the most exciting things, I think. Uh, there's a there's going to be a a graphical toggle switch in Diablo 2 that'll let you essentially just go back in time mm-hmm. uh, 20 years. Just flip, flip, and then flip, flip. Oh my god, I'm playing the old game and the new game at the same time. I mean, and they also said that they are uh, they're going, they're coming through every bit of code and they are leaving it and embracing some of their old bugs and glitches as they have to because if they change certain things they have found that they are integral to the function of the game so because everything is interconnected uh with their older way of writing the code Mm -hmm. it'll be interesting to see hearthstone is also getting new stuff overwatch 2 we saw some amazing new footage from that new characters new maps New areas and older maps, new game modes, new balancing in as far as like passive abilities uh, based on class. It looks like an exciting future for Overwatch, a game that I regrettably didn't play as much as I would have liked. They also teased the new rogue class for Diablo 4. Everything is getting updated. Everything's coming out again. It's really exciting. They, and they have the new, like, Dishonored Chains, Undying Chains something update for the current World of Warcraft classic expansion. Uh, Shadowlands patch. Mm-hmm. Chains of Domination. Uh, that's another new one. Uh, new location called Corthia. Ten boss, a new 10-boss raid and an 8-boss uh, mega dungeon and more. God, hearing those words come out of my mouth. (laughs) Such a nerd. Eight boss mega dungeon. (sighs) Another bit bit of weird BlizzCon news. Uh, A little, I mean, it was the first BlizzCon that was online only because of the situation at hand. Because of COVID. And so it was directly online. Uh, They also had a performance from Metallica that was streamed on Twitch. Uh, That got copyright claimed and like yeah yeah twitch's own system like copyright claimed a live concert from blizzcon they must be sounding too much like the original (laughs) oh yeah Mm. sorry yeah it's like oh yeah they were uh they had they were playing with a track they weren't actually playing live they were just miming everything and they were just pumping the a different live track through but i mean that's a whole nother conversation that will ha- i think we might be seeing more with some streamers playing games i mean because like certain games have 
like mainstream music and it's going to be very much affecting everything else. Um, if they're watching streamers play a game and then it just has like a song in the game, are they going to have to mute the whole game while they're playing? Is it not under like the fair use of that product? We'll see. We'll see. Games should be for the people, their history. This kind of stuff has been happening too much, Dad. It's not fun anymore. Yeah, it is definitely not as fun. <sighs> anyway, that is nope. all the time we have this week. Thank you for listening to the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment's official podcast. If you've got any thoughts, questions, corrections, or general museum ideas, shoot us an email at info at themade.org. We'd like to send a, bid, a big thank you to everyone who donated recently and to our Patreon supporters who keep the made afloat. Patreon donors get to listen to this podcast one week before it's released on major streaming services, and we'll continue that with future episodes every week, except for last week where we took a break. Thank you very much. Uh, we rested nice, and it was great. Uh, till then, I'm Red. I'm Miles. I'm Chin. And I'm Anthony. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.